Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude and over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Yeah, so I was never a runner um, growing up. I um, always played basketball through middle school and high school and didn't really find running until I was in college. And um, I think I'd always been, um, you know, competitive by nature. Um, And I just felt like I needed an outlet for that. And so I picked up running and um, somehow I settled in on um, a marathon. I just thought that that would sound impressive if I could say that I had run a marathon. So that became kind of Yeah, it's like no big deal. Just casual marathon. (laughs) Yep. So um, I settled in on that and started to train for that. And I ran my first marathon the fall of my senior year of college. And, um, I thought, you know, after the marathon, like directly after crossing the finish line, you know, I swore it off and was like, I'm never going to do this again. And, um, I actually tore my plantar fascia during that race and had to basically hobble walk the last three miles. It was right around mile 23 that it tore. Um, so I was actually on crutches after, after my first marathon and in, um, physical therapy for a few weeks. But, um, eventually I came back to it. And I think what I loved about it was just the, the training and sort of the journey to the race, not necessarily the race itself. I mean, I did end up running eight more marathons, but I just really enjoy the work of the training. And, um, and then, um, I got, I basically just, that first marathon got me hooked. Um, and since then, you know, I've, I've actually, I spent quite a bit of time running, you know, local road races and was relatively competitive. Um, and then took a long break from it. Um, when my husband and I lived out in Arizona, but kind of came back to it, um, probably about eight years or eight years ago. And, um, right after I had my, it was kind of right after I had my daughter, I started running again. Um, and I was kind of a new stay at home mom and newly kind of sort of returning to running. Um, and that's when I started my blog was, um, you know, I was staying at home and kind of wanted to talk to somebody about this new experience of motherhood. And so, um, I was a former English teacher, high school English teacher. So it just seemed kind of a natural progression to just start writing about it. And eight years ago, blogging was relatively new. It wasn't like super new, but I was kind of on the the one of the early adopters and um yeah just kind of started 
writing about motherhood and running and then it's really kind of evolved in into what it is now so well that is pretty cool um it's funny what you said I enjoy the work of training um Mm. so full disclosure to the audience Sarah and I met for lunch yesterday and we talked a lot of things but one of the things we talked about was business and I feel like this keeps coming up entrepreneurship and just owning your own business it's like you really have to enjoy the work and so Mm -hmm. yeah um but it but I've never really thought about it in terms of training that's that's pretty cool yeah yeah definitely I mean like I think there there's the kind of people who love love running usually just kind of love the workload you know and the racing is sort of the icing on the cake so nah the same could probably be said for for owning your own business too yeah you know i think about it's like it's not even about the money for me sometimes it's Mm -hmm. just about the actual work which is really bizarre and weird but Mm -hmm. um i do have that i mean you've you've said before on your blog and on your Instagram that you are a competitive person and I definitely have some of that competitive drive and that kind of that type A personality that I know know so many runners have and I just wonder how much of that plays into (laughs) into the fact that we do enjoy the work Mm, yeah I definitely think they're related I um I definitely work with a lot of those uh, the, the same type of um you know, like the type A, the overachiever personality. And I say that with all love and respect because I I totally fall into that bucket. Um, But I do see how this temperament can easily spill over into our food, into our exercise, maybe even into our work, um, definitely into our body image. And what often comes up in conversations is this whole idea of comparison and feeling like we're in competition with other women, mm-hmm. which is such a huge issue for so many of us. And I, I think especially in the age of social media, we can compare our looks, our relationship goals, our family goals. Um, you know, you were talking about motherhood and starting a blog during motherhood, which is, or, you know, during your early mother motherhood years. And um, I think that's so cool because it can be such an isolating time. I remember mm-hmm. for the first two years, I was a mom. I, I I felt like crap all the time because I was always comparing myself to other women on the freaking internet. I'd go on mm-hmm. Facebook, I'd go on Instagram, and I'd be like, "Oh, I'm not doing it right. I am." Or like, I'd be like, "How are they out there living their lives?" And I'm like in the fetal position on the couch, like, "What is mm-hmm. going on?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it always reminds me of, of course, that Gloria Steinem quote: w- "Women need to be linked and not ranked." And when yeah. humans are ranked That's instead right. of linked everyone loses. And I feel like it's, we're living in this system that's sort of designed for failure because we are encouraged to rank ourselves as women and we are encouraged to compete, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so with my clients, I like to unpack that a little bit and like figure out where does this even start? And for many of them, it's it starts as far back as they can remember. So mm-hmm. I, you know, because you are a competitive person and that's what you do for a living, um, talk to me a little bit about, about the C word competition. Yeah. Um, I know that you've been very open about your eating disorder struggles. I mentioned that in, in the, um, in your intro, do you think that there's a connection there? Do you think that the, these competitive personalities can play into eating disorders and body image issues. And, you know, like, how do you, how do you 
make something that could be something like competition can make or break mm-hmm. you, I feel like. So mm-hmm. how do you use it oh, to your yeah. advantage rather yeah. than your demise? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that competition or that competitive nature is um, ingrained in my personality from a really young age. Um, and I can just remember like having waffle eating competitions with my brother, like who could eat the most waffles or, you know, like who could swim to the end of the pool the fastest and, you know, always creating these sort of competitive scenarios with my siblings where it was like, you know, who's going to win, you know, and always being the one who wanted to come out on top. And, um, you know, and if I didn't win, you know, I'd flip over the Parcheesi board and storm out of the room and, you know, um, so that has always been there from from a, a really young age. And I think as I got older, sort of into my teen years, um, sort of realized like, okay, it's it's not really okay for me to be in competition with my siblings. Like we're we're on the same team, like we're a family. I shouldn't be always trying to beat them. And so I think what happened is that I started to be in competition with myself. And that's sort of when um, I think my eating disorder um, behavior really took root. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day, just like how a competitive nature, like what are the facets of it, like in terms of um, what's good about it and what's bad about it and what, you know, kind of you've got these extremes, um, you know, like competition and ego can really get ugly, you know. But if you have competition and humility, it actually can make you better. So there's a lot of women who I'm friends with now who are runners and triathletes. And, um, you know, if we were to all toe the line at a race, we're all trying to beat each other. But then at the same time, we are encouraging each other. And we know that if if one girl is pushing herself to her utmost, then it's going to make us all better if we're trying to keep up with her. And so I think you know, if you combine competition and humility, then you, everybody gets better. And then I think if you take competition plus insecurity, then a lot of times it will result in disorder. And so that was me as an adolescent was this competitive nature plus a whole lot of insecurity. And I just sort of imploded on myself, just sort of at war with my body Um, you know, and that resulted in a struggle with, with anorexia for a while. And then that morphed into bulimia. But, um, I, I don't think that I was ever like in competition with other people who I thought were thinner, who I wanted to be like, it was more of a striving for this ideal in my head that I had sort of created that if I could be, you know, this certain weight or fit into this certain size that I would be happier. So it was like this, this sort of image that I had created that I was striving for. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's so many facets to it that it's kind of, it's kind of hard to figure out like what, you know, what's good that you can take and like keep around and, and what you just kind of want to, you know, push aside and, and not have as part of your life. That is super insightful and it's making me like it's my my gears are turning so much just thinking about my own experience with all of it because 
I real I hated playing sports growing up because I hated being in competition with other people. It made me mm. really, really stressed out and uncomfortable. Mm. And I think it's exactly what you said. It's it had so much to do with my insecurities. It it was because mm-hmm. I was. I just didn't, it was a self-worth issue. I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel like I should be in competition with other people, but I could be in competition with myself, no problem. Yeah. You know, that yeah. it's the, it is that war on ourselves, that war with our, with our bodies. And I think what you said, you really hit the nail on the head. Competition plus insecurity does, does lead to that disorder, whether it's an eating disorder or, or something else. And, you know, it's almost like competition with ourself is almost encouraged, especially in, today's uh diet climate Mm. with the 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 before and after photos it's like Mm -hmm. I always think of it it's like well look at fat old sad unlovable me versus like the new shiny happy brilliant me and Mm. it's it's not so much a before and after you're the same person you know it's like both of those images both of those people are deserving of love it's more of like a then and now, like, I don't know. It's leave room for, leave room for not always being the best version of yourself, I guess, whatever that is. Um, and, and I think being aware when the ego is starting to talk, being aware that, okay, this is, this is ego speaking, which is not, not always easy to do. It really isn't, at least in my eyes, I don't think. Yeah. Um, when you had, when you had originally reached out to me to come talk at your Rise Run retreat, you had, you wanted me to talk about intuitive eating and mindful eating. And I'd love for for you to talk about why you think that's so important, especially with, with runners. Um, mm, yeah. You know, cause I, I do see that being an issue with, with my runner, um, my runner population for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that the endurance sports attract us, you know, a competitive personality. So you're going to have somebody who um, will probably hyper focus on all aspects of their training, whether it's, you know, how many miles they ran or how many calories they're eating, they're eating um, those kinds of things. And so, and I think there's also sort of this trend of, of earning your food through exercise, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I, I ran a marathon or, you know, I ran a half marathon, so I'm going to go celebrate with a beer and a burger, but that's not okay to have a beer and a burger unless I've run this race, you know, this X number of miles. Um, and so I think that, um, there's just some, there's not a lot of, intuitive eating going on in, in the running community because, you know, it's, it's just sort of like another thing that you can log and keep track of. And, um, and so it's easy to, to adopt all these food rules, um, you know, and adopt a really strict way of eating, um, just because that's kind of that goes along with that type a sort of personality that sort of is ends up in endurance sports so um but i i i firmly believe that intuitive eating is really probably the best way to fuel your body and 
I think in the long run, um, is a great way to, you know, my, at least my experience was every tried, every time that I tried to sort of clamp down control on my eating, whether it was through restriction or counting calories, that, that always would backfire on me because whatever cravings I was suppressing, whatever, whatever my body was telling me that I really wanted, even whether it was, you know, for sustenance or for enjoyment, you know, whatever it was that I was denying myself, usually it would come back 10 times stronger. And so I think that, um, that once you settle into, you know, and I think we, we've kind of talked about this idea of uh, unconditional permission, but once you've allowed that for yourself and then, I mean, it, I would say that that takes a little bit of time, at least in my own experience, you know, once you've granted yourself unconditional permission, it kind of takes a little bit of time to kind of self-regulate and just kind of balance out, um, you know, that, that idea of, oh, like everything is permissible. There's no, there's no rules. Um, and so once you sort of settled into granting yourself that permission, then the more in tune you are with your body and what it needs. And I think the more intuitive your eating becomes, um, and the better fueled your body is and the happier you are. I mean, if, if you're walking around with this cloud of rules and over your head about what you can and cannot eat and when you can and can't eat it, um, that's a lot of mental space that's being taken up by something that doesn't really matter. And so, um, I think ultimately for me, my experience has been intuitive eating is freedom and freedom is in enjoying life, you know, and not being obsessed and wrapped up with, um, you know, with the details of, of the food that I put in my body. I'm totally going to butcher this quote, but it's, um, something like the body holds more wisdom than our deepest philosophies. And it's, mm. it's something that we're constantly turning away from is, is our own innate wisdom and trusting that our body really knows what's up. And it can be very, very scary, especially if you're a rule follower to all of a sudden take the rules out of the equation. You're like, holy ass, what's mm. even happening? It feels mm -hmm. very, very scary. Um, Gretchen Rubin, we've talked about her on the show before. I'm a big fan, <laughs> big fan of Gretchen Rubin. And she um, talks about with food, there are usually two camps. There's moderator, moderators and abstainers and abstainers tend to really do well with like yes, no rules. So I do think personality plays into a little bit and taking rules away from somebody that needs rules, it, it can feel like, like a complete fundamental breakdown. Yeah. But if there is like all to your point, if there's all of this mental work and stress and shatter about food all of the time, like that really that only not only weighs you down mentally, that weighs you down physically as well. Like that starts to impact your physiology. And um the whole idea of earning food through exercise is a big one in the running community for sure, maybe even amongst many athletes. And I get it to some extent, um, but most of us are not running around as like elite athletes here. And 
I honestly, the way that I look at it is that that mentality is extraordinarily disordered. The fact that we have to earn our food through exercise, um, to me, that's a real, that comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's a self-worth issue. It's saying that I am not Mm. deserving of food. So I have to go out of my way to be deserving of food. And the fact of the matter is, as a human human being that is on this planet breathing, You've already earned your right to eat. It is the messaging and the programming that has made you believe otherwise. And um, we need to start to unwind that. So there's no there's no earning food um, in my in my um, in my eyes anyway. Now, Kyle isn't on the show. Uh, we had some <laughs> some tech issues, you guys. So she was on the show. Now she's not on the show. But um, she did have a question that's sort of related to that a little bit. Um, so we were talking about intuitive eating, and she was wanted to bring up this whole idea of intuitive training. Like how do you balance mm-hmm. having goals uh, with mm-hmm. knowing when to scale back? And I think, so again, coming back to the, to the ladies that I see with that overachiever, perfectionist, um, or even just the modern woman of like doing the most all the time, it, it can be mm-hmm. super duper taxing on the body. Um, you know, I see a lot of adrenal issues in my practice and it's like, okay, it's great to have these goals, but how do you temper something that's so good for you, maybe mentally, but can be so challenging physically? Like where do you draw the mm-hmm. line and how do you know, how do you start to listen to your body? Yeah. I mean, I think, Uh, this is a tough one. And and I think, especially for recreational runners, um, you know, who are out there, you know, oftentimes 365 days a year, you know, um, whether you're competitive in your age group, or you're, you know, looking to try and, you know, improve your times and different distances. um, There's a tendency to just train all year round at the same level. Um, So I think one of the things um, that is helpful is to have a coach. Um, I am a a running coach and, but I also work with a coach. I have, I have my own coach. Um, And so we usually sit down at the, at the beginning of the year, kind of, you know, December-ish time and map out the races that I want to do, you know, what are my big goal races? And then um, usually every year I take, an off season in, in November, October, November, where I take a, you know, three to four weeks where, you know, maybe one week of total rest. So no running and no working out at the gym or, you know, no, no anything really. Um, and then the re- the remaining weeks of the, um, the off season are just doing, moving with my kids, going hiking with my kids or, you know, taking a yoga class or, you know, going to the gym, um, doing something that's not structured training specific to running. Um, and so actually I'm just coming off a mid season, a mini mid season break where I took 10 days off, um, where I didn't 10 days off of running. Yeah. 10 days off of running. So I didn't run for 10 days and I'm not injured. So I, it wasn't injury prevention. It's not, I'm not trying to heal something that's broken. I'm just, I finished my my spring and early summer racing, and I'm taking ten days before I get into my late summer and fall races. Was has that so. been hard for you mentally to take 
take that much time off? No, actually. And I think that's so many people are so worried about like either being stir crazy or not having their, their, you know, mental release or, um, you know, not having that outlet. Um, but I actually really enjoy it. And, you know, I take a full, I took a full seven days, um, where I didn't do any, you know, running or, you know, cross training or strength training or anything. And then after seven days, I started to get back to the gym, just strength training, still no running. Um, and at the 10 day mark was when I, when I had my first run. Um, and actually I think for me, it's a really good sign that I don't miss it when I take that break because I have this sort of addictive personality that tends towards obsession and disorder. For me, that is a really healthy sign that I can take a big chunk of, you know, a big chunk of time off from running and not, you know, obsess about it or miss it or, you know, go crazy. So, um, and I think for me, it's about sustainability. You know, I, I want to be competitive into my 40s, into my 50s. So if if I want to sustain my a high level of training, then I have to take breaks or else I'm going to end up injured. So I think for recreational runners, it's just really important to sit down, you know, at the beginning of the year and kind of map out, you know, what races are you going to do? What are your goals? And after each, you know, big race, let's say you choose two to three big races in a calendar year, to take a week afterwards where you, where you take a break, where you, you know, take, take a break from structured training, from a neat plan, and just move in other ways that, that are not running. And I know that not our, our whole, you know, it's, we're not a running podcast. And so our audience isn't all runners. I'm sure we've got a lot of them out there, but I think this lesson can be, can be extended to so many different things. Um, when I have, you know, when I'm talking to somebody and I'm assessing how they're doing, how they're feeling, a big, big thing that I see is super low energy. I just am so tired. I don't have energy. Mm. I have brain fog. Those are the big three things that I see from women. And I go over their, not just their food, but their life. And I'm like, holy smokes, look at all the things you're doing. And a lot of us use exercise as a stress relief, right? But exercise, Mm. (laughs) it's kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword because if you've got a ton of life stress and then you throw exercise, which is a stress stressor in and of itself onto that, we've got a real problem. Um, So I love Mm -hmm. what you're saying about being cyclical um, and having these seasons in order Mm -hmm. to be able to do this for the long haul. Um, And again, whether that's running or something else, like we just want to feel good. We we, we want longevity with just feeling good. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that requires us to pulse in and out of things. And I've tried to be real, you know, talk about it on the show quite a bit of like how I'll move through different exercise based on how I'm feeling and really trying to listen to my body and, and, you know, come back to that intuitive intuition um and that body wisdom and like trusting that my body knows what's up it's going to tell me what I need to do but that's really really hard for people to to give up and so it's nice hearing from somebody who is a professional competitive runner to hear like yeah sometimes you take breaks too um because honestly like 
every single thing in nature has seasons and yet we expect Mm -hmm. ourselves to function at this go, 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 go pace around the clock and it just doesn't make any sense from a from a biological standpoint. I mean, look out at nature. The moon has cycles. This we we have seasons, and yet we expect ourselves to perform at like our peak all the time. It's just bonkers. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think it's so it cool. Really... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, it it really is an unrealistic expectation, and so I I try to look at it as you know, like you said. Um, you know, there are seasons and a cyclical nature to everything around us. If you kind of look at it as an ebb and flow of your energy levels so that, so that you can peak because you're, I mean, obviously, you know, the goal for a competitive runner is to peak on race day at your goal race, you know, and hit your goal. So if you're always sort of functioning at this high output, high energy level, you're never going to peak. And so you're never going to reach your goals. So Um, so looking at at it in a cyclical way, you know, with an ebb and flow is, is the best way to go about it. I, um, what I was going to say before is I think it's very cool that you're, um, that you are a coach who has a coach because it's so important to like, I mean, I'm a nutritionist and I feel like I'm pretty good at my job, but I have my own nutritionist. Like I need somebody to come in and like, kind of not tell me what to do, but you know, just to like get out of my own way sometimes. So mm-hmm. I think sometimes we yeah. like, I don't know if we're in that profession, it's hard for us to like seek somebody else out to help with, you know, with, with stuff. But I think mm-hmm. it's so, so important to do. Um, yeah. There was something that I wanted to bring up that I recently read and I don't, I think it was a blog post you wrote, you wrote relatively recently and it was about your postpartum experience with your third child. So you have... Mm-hmm three kiddos um and so you said the third time around it was different than with your first two particularly when it involved running and getting back to running and this definitely caught my eye because I pretty much hate everything about how our society views the postpartum time period um my own postpartum care was deplorable and now I see a lot of clients in this whole phase whether it's a couple months after having a baby or a year or two years after having a baby and they're just struggling and sometimes it's a physical thing because this postpartum period can be can really be triggersome for thyroid imbalance autoimmunity adrenal issues but sometimes they're struggling because they're wondering why they're not performing the way they used to or the way that they think they should um, I, you know, we all can relate to, to how much pressure society puts on us to return to exactly who we were, what we did, and exactly how we looked right after having a baby. That, that grace period, I don't even, I shouldn't even call it a grace period because there's not much grace involved, but it's just so unrealistically short and, and we place these impossible standards on ourselves and it leads to health issues, both mentally and physically. So, I'd love for you to talk us through what may have changed um, in your mindset and your approach after having your third child. Um, I feel like you're you're basically an expert on this after having three children. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think so. In terms of just the the running piece, um, you know, after my first child, I had hadn't been running. Um, at all for about three years. And so 
my return to running after my first was very gradual and she was born in December. So it's like, who wants to go out and run in, in January and February anyway. So in new England, um, so that, that return to running was pretty gradual. And then by the time I was pregnant with and had my second, um, I'd kind of worked my way back up to being competitive. I'd won a couple local races, nothing crazy, but, um, was, you know, was running pretty well. And so going into that pregnancy, you know, I was just thinking like, you know, I, I just don't want to lose any fitness. I don't want to, I don't want any setbacks. I want to just jump right back in after I have them. And, um, and so I ran, you know, I ran quite, quite a bit up until I had him, you know, was still running pretty high, you know, for pregnant, for a pregnant woman, relatively high mileage. Um, and then afterwards I jumped on the treadmill probably, I think it was four days postpartum, um, which was really idiot, an idiotic thing to do. Um, and you know, it was like, Oh, okay, maybe I'm not ready. I'll wait another week or two. So I waited a couple more weeks and then kind of got right back into it. And, um, I remember being on the treadmill and just feeling like everything was falling out <laughs> and just this and was just leaking constantly, like not just running, just walking around the kitchen, you know, or carrying groceries in from the car. Um, so that's when I realized like, okay, there's, you know, there's something really wrong here. And I uh, ended up seeing a physical therapist who specialized in women's health and pelvic floor rehab. You saw Kristen um, over at Oceanside, right? I did. Yep. Shouting I saw her Kristen out. At Oceanside. Ooh, ooh. Yeah. And she was just starting her practice. Like she was in a massage therapist's room and like just doing it on her own. And um, anyway, so I saw her and, you know, her assessment kind of showed that I had a very slight prolapse, bladder prolapse. Um, and that I really, my pelvic floor was just pretty much shot. Like, super weak. Um, and you know, I'd weakened it by running really late into my pregnancy and then I hadn't done any sort of pelvic floor strength to, to, um, support the, the running and the training that I had wanted to do. So, um, so basically I just kind of had to backtrack, you know, back to these, you know, really small exercises to strengthen my pelvic floor, to strengthen the inner abdominal wall and, just had to spend quite a few weeks just getting strong again so that I could run, um, without leaking. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think there's, it's interesting cause I've talked to Kristen quite a bit about this, but running in preg you know, through your pregnancy and postpartum is in terms of like the grand scheme of things is a relatively new, um, new trend, I guess you could say, because for a long time, the recommendation was that women don't do, you know, those types of exercises during pregnancy. So in terms of studies, like scientific studies on, you know, prenatal and postpartum exercise, there's just, and pelvic floor health, there's just not anything out there. Um, because it just hasn't, you know, hasn't been around long enough. But, um, you know, my, my, sort of prediction is that 10 years from now, you know, um, there's going to be a whole slew of studies, um, about 
pelvic floor health because I think this trend coupled with, um, you know, and it's, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to run during pregnancy. I think it's great. And I did so with my third, except I was just way smarter about it. I saw Kristen, my pelvic floor physical therapist prior to, um, you know, during the, the prenatal, um, time, I saw her probably three times just to check in and, and just to get more exercises and, you know, see what was going on. And, she was checking for strengths and weaknesses and imbalances while I was pregnant. And then I went to her right away after I had Liam um, and saw her for quite a few weeks um, before we finally kind of arrived at the decision that, hey, you know, you're five weeks postpartum. It seems like things are coming together. Why don't you give running a try? Um, and so... I, my, my running during pregnancy and running postpartum was sort of guided by, by her recommendations. So I was just much smarter, much more conservative, um, in my third pregnancy. But I think, you know, kind of going back to what I was talking about in terms of like pelvic floor health and, and trends, um, you know, I think this idea of running through pregnancy, um, and returning to running very soon postpartum plus social media um, is just like the perfect storm um, of just like bad habits for, or, you know, just like doing, not listening to your body, I guess is what I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, and I, I certainly, felt like this was true of me, but I really took pride in the fact that I ran through my second pregnancy all the way up until my, you know, a couple days before my due date. And of course I posted that on social media, like, Hey, look at me. But what I didn't post was like, Oh, I leaked the whole time. You know, I've got pee running down my legs because <laughs> I'm not taking care of my body. Um, no, nobody talks about that. Um, you know, you're just, whatever you see on social media is just the high, you know, the highlights and the snapshot and the good stuff. And so I think that a lot of women aren't necessarily listening to their bodies because, oh, they look on social media and it's like, oh, well, she's doing it. She's 33 weeks. She's 38 weeks. She's just ran five miles. She just raced a half marathon. You know, everyone's kind of looking around and seeing what everyone else is doing. And then putting that pressure on themselves to kind of keep up with that because that's not, well, that's normal now. And, you know, it's not, it's not normal. Um, and there's, you know, there's not anything out there in terms of like guidelines or, or, you know, recommendations, um, that pertain to pelvic floor health. I think a lot of OBs and doctors are focused on fetal health and that's what their expertise is in you know, fetal and maternal health, but nobody is, is looking at like pelvic floor health and saying, Hey, you know, raising a red flag and say, Hey, wait a minute. Should women really be running half marathons when they're 38 weeks pregnant? You know, are they, you know, 10, 15 years down the line going to be getting surgery because they have this prolapse that is no longer reversible with physical therapy, you know? So I just, I think it's, it's something that needs to be talked about because it is relatively new um, and because there is so much pressure around um, social media. So, Yeah, and 
you know, it's interesting what you said because it's like we do that. We all do that, whether it's with running or postpartum or anything. And what we don't – we never stop to to think about the fact that we have no context to the image and the captions that we see. We don't know what is going mm-hmm. on behind the scenes. People didn't know you were pissing yourself. You know what I mean? Like right. you don't know what's going on. And I don't necessarily think – like, you know, not everybody is necessarily being – um you know, we're not trying to be like snaky, like only revealing certain things, not all of us, but it's mm-hmm. just a, it's just an, an image. It's a moment in time without any context. We don't know the person's health history. We don't, we don't know anything. So to compare what somebody else is doing is just so bonkers. And yet, and yet, yet we do it. Um, I did, I wasn't planning on bringing this up, but it, it, it kind of feels right. I had um, somebody, a listener write in, uh, talking about Transformation Tuesdays, um, which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm honestly not super familiar with, um, and I don't have the email sitting in front of me, but she wanted me to kind of do a riff on a blog blog post about it and how, you know, she she would much rather see rather than like the before and after pictures, like how about before and after an eating disorder recovery or before and after somebody got healthy and like I would much rather see that in my feed. And I was sitting over here thinking, holy smokes, I don't even know what Transformation Tuesdays is. That's not, not even on my radar. And what is on my radar, what I do see in my feed is is the eating disorder recovery before and after. It is the I got healthy before and after. And I think it's because I have spent so much time and effort curating my feed so that I don't see the things that that I don't want to see. If, if it registers mm-hmm. as unhealthy to me, and I'm not talking about the person that's posting, I'm talking about my response to it, it goes. Like that's an immediate unfollow. And that says, it's just, it has everything to do with me, not, not the other person. Um, but I spend a lot of time on social media. So it has to be a safe place for me. One where I don't feel triggered. One where I don't feel like, oh my God, I'm a crap person because I can't do X, Y, Z, or I don't look like that, or I'm not performing to that level. If, I guess my my um, advice for that reader is like, if that's happening, if that's coming up, you got to do a really good job of cleaning that stuff up and taking it on out of there. You do not need to feel less than when you go onto your social media pages. Um, and again, there's nothing wrong with people posting that. It's the issue is like, how are you responding? And you have to constantly check in with yourself. Like, how am I responding to this? Is this a trigger for me? Is this causing me to feel badly about myself? And if that's the case, get it out of there. That's, that is your responsibility as the consumer. Um, so that's just my little two cents on that. Yeah. No, I definitely agree that, um, you know, I spend a lot of time on social media and it can definitely be a place where, you know, if you're, if you're scrolling around and what you're seeing is making you feel, you know, discouraged, depressed, you know, less than, then that's probably somebody you shouldn't be following. And, you know, who knows, like people might be not following me because I do that to them not necessarily my intention, but maybe there's something about me that, you know, triggers something in, in them. And that's okay. I'd rather, you know, if it's better for your mental well-being to not follow me, then, you know, don't follow, you know, don't follow me. And I do the same, you know, I do the same thing. Some of the things that, that I feel insecure about, I mean, honestly, 
we we homeschool our three kids and I you know and I do a lot of other things so I'm always feeling like I'm not doing enough for my kids so I can't follow any other homeschooling moms on Instagram <laughs> because it makes me feel like I'm not doing enough because they're they're so into it or you know look at that great lesson plan that they just created and look at that craft that they have their kids doing and you know and then you know I feel terrible about like the coloring pages I just printed or you know like whatever it is like I just I did for whatever reason I just can't I can't follow people like that <laughs> so so oh I my think, gosh you know no, I'm right there with to, you like, yeah you just have to pick and choose and and like you said curate your feed so that it's uplifting to you and and not discouraging I um I was following so I don't know if it would be a attachment parent parenting but like kind of like that sort of stuff like the conscious parenting and it was like mm. stuff kept coming up in my feed about like how you never want to say no to your child and I was like oh my god <laughs> I like started a fund for Hattie's like future therapy because I'm like I I can't and I just felt like such a bad mom every time I read them and then I'm like why why is this in my feed still I gotta I gotta let it go and exactly yeah. to your point like there's been a couple of people who have said to me like oh I always feel like when I see what your feed eating Hattie I always feel like crap about myself I'm like unfollow me like get it get that out of there you don't need to be feeling you know guilty about anything just just yeah. unfollow you know um all right we did have one listener question come in so in the first part is I'll answer because I don't want to throw you on the spot it's definitely a nutrition based question but the other one the other part of the question is something that I feel like you could probably tackle so she wrote in, um, and I actually don't have her name. Uh, this was somebody that wrote into Kyle. Is it really possible to get enough iron as a female vegetarian endurance athlete? I also do ultra marathons, and I've recently started eating red meat occasionally because I was diagnosed as anemic. I was taking iron supplements, but still drooling at the thought of high iron foods. And so my thought with this, putting my nutrition hat on, um, is – is that okay so first of all iron from plants which is non-heme iron is absorbed very differently than iron from animal sources which is called heme iron so if your body is telling you that it needs more iron i would absolutely listen to that especially if you're open to eating meat which it sounds like you are since you're doing it um keep in mind that while red meat does contain iron so do other uh, animal sources so don't feel like you have to eat red meat just to get iron uh bivalves do so that's like mussels clams uh, what else is a bivalve? Mussels, clams. You, you probably get the picture here. Um, chicken, fish, turkey, all of that contains ample iron. So just eat what your body craves. It's really one of the best ways to bring mindfulness and intuition into your eating is listening to your body. It's honestly not feedback that we want to reject. If your body's really craving something like that, I mean, it's not craving Cheetos, it's craving iron rich foods, which is pretty darn specific. Um, I've, I, I was a vegan for some time and all of a sudden it was like super random. I started dreaming, like literally having dreams about eating salmon. And at that point in my life, I had never even eaten salmon before in my entire life. So it was like a very weird thing. But, um, my boyfriend at the time was, was kind enough to encourage me to actually go ahead and eat the salmon. And it was like, once I started, I couldn't stop. Like I ate salmon every single night for a long time. So clearly my body was in need of something there. And then I kind of got over that phase, but it like filled, filled the need. And I'm really grateful that I was able to listen to that. So 
the point is, I said it before, our bodies are pretty darn wise. And if you're willing to listen to them, then they will deliver exactly what we need. So that's my, um, do you have anything to add in terms of iron? Have you had issues with iron at all? Um, I haven't, um, I have had, um, my blood tested quite a few times, you know, there are obviously different, different, um, blood testing services out there and some of them market towards, um, endurance athletes. Um, you know, a lot of times my ferritin is low, um, not necessarily my iron. Um, and you could probably talk more about ferritin and, and why it's important. Um, but, um, for the most part, I haven't, I haven't had any issues with low iron. Um, so. Okay, cool. Um, but she also had a second part question that I think would be more directed to you. How do you make sure that you're eating enough calories without counting the calories when you're an endurance athlete? And I think this is especially true, or it would be interesting to hear what you have to say as somebody that has recovered from an eating disorder and does practice intuitive eating. She says that going off of hunger pains can steer her in the wrong direction with both under and overeating. Yeah, I mean, I think this this kind of speaks directly to that to that intuitive eating. Um, you know, I I don't don't count calories. I don't count you know track macro micronutrients. Um, I mostly just try to eat a variety of foods and eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full. And I think so. I don't. I'm in a place now where I don't see overeating as a problem. Um, you know, if, if I overeat at a, any given meal, then I know that the next day or the next meal, my body will tell me what it wants. And if it doesn't want as, and typically it does not want as much. So I have kind of gotten away from this idea that my portions have to be certain sizes at certain meals. And I just eat kind of what I want and what what feels good. And, you know, once I'm satiated, I stop, um, you know, and sometimes I eat beyond that point of satiety. You know, I, I eat more than I, more than what fills me up. And, you know, and so I think, you know, maybe shifting your mentality towards this idea of overeating might be helpful, um, to know that if you do overeat, that your body will regulate itself after after that happens and you probably won't eat as much the next day or the next meal um so i think you know i think when when you're an athlete it's just really important to listen to you know because you're you know and it sounds like she's really active um and doing quite a bit of training if she's running you know ultras um so i think it's just really important to to just honor the cravings that you have and the hunger that you have when you have it. Um, and, and not, um, you know, not, not kind of box things into, into this idea of under or overeating. Yeah. I love what you said, a, a kind of like a reframe around overeating. And honestly, so many of us are under eating anyway, that what we consider overeating is just actually eating like normal. Um, yeah. 
And it kind of goes back to the point where we were talking about earlier with cycles. Like how do we expect our bodies to just eat the same amount of food every single day when so so many of our inputs change every single day? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's yeah. kind of a silly thing. And I, I, I think your point that like if you eat a lot one day, then the next day your body might not want that much food. It's just a, a matter of listening to your body. And especially as females, I mean, our hormones play into that. Uh, where we are in our cycle, it all it's all pretty, you know, really plays plays into our hunger levels. Um, all right, so it, we're coming up on an hour here, and I don't want to keep you for too much longer. I know that you have an event coming up in November, I believe it is. So I'd love for you to tell us where a little bit more about that and where our listeners can find you. I do want to shout out your, you do have a postpartum training. I know we talked a lot about postpartum running. You have a training plan on your website. I'll link to that in the show notes, but tell us a little bit more about where we can find you in your, your next events. Yeah. So, um, I, you can find my blog at runfartgirl.com and then my social media handles, Twitter and Instagram are at runfargirl. And then the event that Erin was talking about is Rise Run Retreat. And we had have three events this year. We've already had our spring retreat, which Erin came to. And then um, in a few weeks here, we're going to have a women's running camp. Um, and then in November, we have a race weekend meetup in the Seacoast area of New Hampshire. Um, it'll be a really fun weekend of a live podcast broadcast um, at a local brewery a shakeout run, a pre-race dinner, and then um, our the group that, that gathers for that weekend will be running the Seacoast Half Marathon in Portsmouth. So it's just a super fun girls weekend with lots of great content and events to go to. Um, and that'll be um, the weekend uh, around November 11th. I believe the race is November 11th. So I think it's like November 9th through the 11th, uh, yeah, 9th through the 11th. And for more information about that, you can go to riserunretreat.com. And that's the, all, the, all of our events and a little bit about um, how I started Rise Run Retreat. That's all up there on that, that website. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being on the show. I know this is a good one. A lot of people are going to be looking forward to hearing hearing about all this stuff. And um, definitely, you guys, go check her out. Um, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.